California often hails itself as the state that most exemplifies the promise of the nation. Or as Kevin Starr, historian and state librarian emeritus of California once put it, California's future and its promise are nothing less than the future and promise of America. It's a significant narrative that informs the rhetoric of state leaders and culture makers. In other words, from celebrating the state's tendency towards progressive politics, to its multicultural residents, to its innovative business landscape and protected natural splendor, California's mythology is rooted in idealism. So we're going to discuss two issues that are directly tied to the Golden State's reputation for innovation and progress, agriculture and civil rights. To do so, we're going to highlight an often overlooked part of state history, the statewide impact that 19th century black homesteaders made in these pivotal areas. In doing so, we'll not only acknowledge that from its inception, black people have farmed and ranched in California. But also, we'll discover how California does have a history in relation to civil rights. African Americans grabbed the opportunity and they made the most of it, especially in farming. So in this episode, we'll see how early African-American farmers and ranchers didn't just grow crops and raise livestock throughout the Golden State. They also cultivated societal change that helped make California what it is today. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calag Roots podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming, to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the third episode in our We Are Not Strangers Here series. This series, which draws its name from writer Robbie Howard, highlights hidden histories of African-Americans who have shaped California's food and farming culture from early statehood to the present. This six-part series is also connected to a traveling exhibit with the same name. The exhibit was originally designed to travel throughout California, We printed big, beautiful banners full of all kinds of photos from the archives that accompany the stories we're telling. But then the pandemic happened. And so now we're digitally reconceiving the We Are Not Strangers Here exhibit so that people can still enjoy it even during the pandemic. It's not up yet, but we're working on it. Please check out www.agroots.org for updates. California is known for the bounty of produce that sprouts from its soil. Back in the 19th century, it was often viewed as a land of plenty by settlers looking for land-based opportunity, so much so that it was coined the cornucopia of the world by early advertisers. But the reality that many early settlers faced in rural California didn't always match promises of magical soil made famous by advertisements. Much of California is extremely dry, To create the state's now booming agricultural economy, it took the manipulation of huge amounts of water and the introduction of various crops. And that involved the work of lots of people, including innovative 19th century homesteaders. Among these pioneering settlers were African Americans who chose not to reside in urban centers across the state. Instead, they established roots in rural California, where, like other settlers, they purchased land that had once belonged to indigenous peoples and was later claimed by the government or private citizens. In fact, in our first episode, we dove into the story of one of those early settlers, California 49er Alvin Coffey. 
Coffee was an enslaved miner and ranch hand who labored during the gold rush not to get rich quick, but for his freedom, the freedom of his wife and children, and the future they eventually built in rural California. It's a fascinating tale filled with iconic pioneer moments. Yet, most Californians have never heard of Alvin Coffee or a lot of other black homesteaders in the state, like Alice Ballard and her father, John, whose homesteads in the Santa Monica Mountains we discussed in our second episode. So we talked to Susan Anderson, our podcast's primary history advisor, about why these stories aren't well known in California history. As the history curator and program manager of the California African American Museum, she's working to trace the histories of black homesteaders across the state. And she told us that. Part of what I have observed is that California history was whitewashed. That whitewashing also applies to the history of the state's 19th century black homesteaders. The history of their presence in rural California has been suppressed. And that means if official state narratives don't largely include the stories of black homesteaders, then the agricultural contributions of these settlers also gets overlooked because... Homesteading is about ranching and farming. So it's important that we acknowledge their stories because archival evidence across the state shows that early black pioneers worked and lived throughout rural California, often alongside multicultural neighbors. They farmed, they ranched, and many made lasting contributions to what we grow and how we grow crops in the state. Like Fresno's Gabriel Moore, who helped make California's Central Valley the most productive agricultural region in the state. Moore was born in 1812 in Alabama, and he came as an enslaved person with two men who were sons of the woman who owned him to California in 1853. Moore was among the thousands of African-Americans, both enslaved and free, who trekked to California by wagon train during the 19th century. And somehow the accounts don't reveal how, but he became a free man at some point after arriving in California. Freedom in hand, he and his wife Mary began impacting Central Valley agriculture almost immediately. In fact, by 1857, just four years after his arrival to the state, records list Moore as a Fresno County taxpayer who was beginning to establish a lucrative homestead. He got his wealth through farming. He and his wife are credited with planting the first apple and fig orchards in Fresno County. It was a significant decision. Today, 90% of American figs are grown in California, mainly in Fresno County. And domestically, California is the second largest exporter of apples. However, the Morris business endeavors also traveled beyond their orchards. He's also considered to have been the first African-American cattle rancher in California. Their 350-acre ranch was successful enough to impact others in the valley. For example, the Moors opened their home to boarders, providing other African-American settlers a place to work and live as they got on their feet in California. And historical records show the Moors didn't just impact the lives of other Black Californians. They employed white ex-Southerners as their herd drivers. And when a group of local white residents wanted to open a dairy, it was the Moors that sold them the heads of cattle to give them their start. However, 
In a region where economic success often depends upon the manipulation of water, the Moors' contribution to local irrigation practices might be their most lasting legacy. They were settled in Centerville, and their lands were along that portion of the Kings River. Like the larger San Joaquin River, the Kings River begins hundreds of miles away from the Central Valley in glacial lakes nestled atop the Sierra Nevada mountain range. From there, this waterway dramatically plummets through deep canyons and waterfalls, becoming a corridor of white water rapids before finally making its way to the Central Valley, where its North Fork joins the San Joaquin River and its South Fork ends at the Tulare Lake Basin. The Moore's homestead was located in a long, narrow belt of land in the valley along the river bottom. And despite the river's size and strength, in the late 1850s, when they first settled in the area, large-scale irrigation methods weren't in place. This was years before the 1887 Wright Act, which allowed small groups of farmers to band together to create their own irrigation districts. Together, these groups of farmers then took water from major tributaries in the Central Valley, like the Merced, San Joaquin, and Kings Rivers. However, before that act, farmers were on their own when figuring out how to irrigate their crops. So Gabriel Moore was one of the first settlers ever to divert water from the Kings River, according to the National Park Service. He engineered and built the river's first rock dam, transferring large stones, rocks, gravel, and earth in order to redirect the waterway. This innovation carried water into a small canal that he then used to irrigate acres of corn and potatoes on his family's homestead. Due to these efforts, the Kings River, in many ways, changed the life of the Moore family. Their rock dam helped sustain their lands, crops, and their livelihood. And so we can imagine that Gabriel Moore probably felt a particular affinity with the river that maintained his homestead and a familiarity with the waterway he regularly crossed by horse with his cattle. However, just as the river provided for the Moore family, it also took because three decades after settling along the river bottom in Central Valley, it was the Kings River that actually claimed Moore's life at the age of 67. On May 28, 1880, the Fresno Republican newspaper reported this tragic loss of life with these words, quote, Gabriel Moore, an old and well-known colored citizen, long resident in the vicinity of Centerville, was found drowned in the Kings River. On Wednesday, in the company of his hired man, he crossed the river to bring over some cattle. After reaching the eastern shore, they separated, and that was the last seen of him until his body was found. It is conjectured that he attempted to return at the usual crossing, as his horse was found near there, and he must have gotten entangled in the bridle. In the end, though the river took Moore's life, his manipulation of it had a lasting impact. Susan Anderson reminds us of the significance of his rock dam, the first of its kind along the Kings River. Part of the reason this is important is because it's a first and it's something we didn't know. But it's also an important part of California history because of the critical role irrigation played in the area's development. Fresno County is the biggest agricultural county in the country. And it has more millions of acres under cultivation, under irrigation than any other part of Central Valley. And statewide, 
California now has nearly 1,500 dams. Most of the major construction efforts meant to do anything from provide water and electricity to flood control and recreation. So Gabriel Moore and his land and his family and his endeavors were part of this incipient activity that ended up changing everything and that we're still living with in California. At the top of this episode, we said we were going to discuss agriculture and civil rights, two issues directly tied to California's reputation as an epicenter of innovation and progress. Now at face value, agriculture and civil rights may not seem obviously related, But throughout California history, these two issues have intersected, including the many recent and current farm worker movements focused on strengthening workers' rights in the state and nation. However, we can also see this relationship between agriculture and civil rights in the history of Black homesteaders across early California. So when official state histories exclude the role of 19th century African-American homesteaders, we don't just miss out on important agricultural narratives like the innovation of pioneers like the Moors and their Kings River irrigation system. We also don't get a full sense of California's civic history. And that means several things. Again, Susan Anderson. It means partly that acts that were committed against Black people were left out. So most Californians do not learn that the first state legislature and the Constitutional Convention passed laws that forbade African Americans from testifying in court and from exercising the vote and all sorts of things. But that's not all that gets lost. The roles played by Black people are left out as well. That's an important omission because many early black settlers made critical contributions to civil rights across the state, fighting for the right to vote and other civic freedoms. And when you think about the fundamental promise of homesteading, the freedom and independence to work the land in order to build a future, often for a family, it's unsurprising that many of these settlers' fights for equality often focused on the education of their children. They desired an education, they were eager for their children to be educated Since original California law left the question of integration up to individual school districts, many times, desiring an education for their children meant taking matters into their own hands. So, in instances where local schools prohibited black students? They ran their own school. Sometimes they raised money to build a building. Often they used a a building that was already there, a church basement, a home, another kind of building. And they would raise money through subscriptions, dances, fundraisers to pay the teachers and to to contribute to the upkeep of the school. Sometimes these schools were even meant to be mobile. Michelle Thompson, great-great-granddaughter of 49er Alvin Coffey, who we talked about in our first episode, recalls family lore about rolling schools. I guess it would be the frontier version of a mobile home, but it was a a cabin that was built in such a way that they could row it from location to location on logs. So if it was out in the field, if it got muddy from the rain, they could move it someplace else. And the children had to walk some distance to get there. One such school would later play a key role in California history. 
Before we get to the school, though, we're going to back up a bit to 1873. That year, in Kansas, Lucy McKinney married Wiley Hines. Lucy was a young woman, just about 18 years old at the time. Her new husband, Wiley, was a California farmer. So this meant that after their marriage in Kansas, Lucy was going to leave her home and trek over a thousand miles to the state of California. We can only imagine how Lucy's new husband, Wiley, might have described her soon-to-be new home and wonder if he also painted it as a land of promise like the land advertisers of the time. Wiley had originally moved to California 15 years before he and Lucy married. When he first arrived in the Golden State, he immediately started working in the San Joaquin Valley. So he came out to farm. He didn't go through the gold rush fields like many others. Jonathan Wattmeyer is Tulare County's lead librarian who oversees the Annie R. Mitchell History Room. Hines ultimately settled in the area, so the History Room holds a lot of information about him. He came to Visalia, and when he got here, he started working for $30 a month, working for a local farmer named Mr. Pemberton. And then he also started being employed by other local farmers. Soon, he'd saved enough money to strike out on his own. In 1865, he started engaging in the stock business, so that would be uh, cattle, and he had been involved with uh, raising hogs, too. And so after he started making money, he ended up buying his own property. A plot that he added to each year. He bought his first 80 acres in 1868, And then two years later, he added 80 more acres, and then he kept accruing more and more property until he had over 1,000 acres of land in Tulare County, which is a significant amount of land. So in 1873, when a young Lucy McKinney Hines left Kansas with her new husband, Wiley, she eventually arrived at a sprawling Farmersville ranch just outside Visalia. There they would make a home and a family. They became actively involved in their community, where Wiley Hines was a leader. He became a very well-known figure in Tulare County. He recognized that education was important. And in this area, and I think statewide, there were still a lot of segregation in schools. Wiley Hines' son went to school in Exeter, a town about four miles away from their home. It wasn't segregated. But in the schools in Visalia were. Which makes sense given the fact that, at the time, Visalia was home to many white residents who'd sided with the South in the Civil War. So he started what was called the Colored School. And even though their own son wasn't a pupil at the school, the Hines family dedicated all sorts of resources to ensure it thrived. At first it was on his property. It was just a barn and he hired a school teacher from Fresno County who had originally come here from Maine. In fact, this teacher, Daniel Scott, who was African-American, had previously been the private tutor of the Hines family. He paid the teacher to teach the kids who were African-American, there were students who were Mexican, and there were students who were Native American. And so that started on his property, and then it got to the point where it got large enough where he moved it closer to Visalia. A move that would indirectly place this school at the center of a California Supreme Court battle, largely due to the efforts of another rural California settler, Edmund Edward Weisinger. 
But to understand the court case, first, it's important to understand Weisinger's story. Like Hines, Edmund Weisinger was another black farmer in the state. Edmund Weisinger was born on a South Carolina plantation in 1816. His father was a Cherokee and his mother was African-American. Edmund's original Cherokee last name was Bush, but he later took the name of his German owner, Weisinger. When Edmund Weisinger was 32 years old, he came west. He came out to California for the gold rush. He and his owner came to California by covered wagon, traveling through the perilous Donner Pass, before finally arriving in October 1849 at the height of the rush. They originally settled in Grass Valley, California, a small town in the western foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. Weisinger and a group of more than 100 other black miners, free and enslaved, mined across California's motherlode gold belt. In fact, some locations across this belt were given names like Negro Bar due to the presence of these African-American miners. There, in gold country, Weisinger toiled for a year as an enslaved miner, because, as we discussed in our first episode, though California was technically a free state, slavery was often practiced out in the open as white Southerners rushed into the gold fields with enslaved individuals who, at times, made them small fortunes. So, under those conditions, Weisinger eventually earned $1,000 in order to buy his freedom. Once free, he began establishing an independent life in California. Then he married Panicia Wilson in 1864. She was the daughter of settlers who'd also arrived in Grass Valley by wagon train. The two eventually moved to Tulare County. There, they raised eight children on their family farm. Weisinger was a self-educated man, and he stressed the importance of education to his children. So, on October 1, 1888, Weisinger took his 12-year-old son Arthur to be enrolled in Visalia's only public high school. But when they got there, a teacher named Mr. Crookshank denied Arthur admittance. Crookshank told Weisinger to take the boy to the colored school, the same one Lucy and Wiley Hines had established. And so he sued Crookshanks and he sued the, the schools. A superior court heard the case and sided with the school district. So Weisinger appealed, eventually taking his case to the California Supreme Court. And then in 1890, the California State Supreme Court ruled that segregation is not allowed because of his lawsuit. And so his son, Arthur Weisinger, enrolled in the high school immediately after the ruling. It was a legal battle that forever altered the state. For Weisinger, it's, it's not necessarily that he had a lot of property. For him, his impact is on civil rights. It was very significant that 60 years before Brown versus the Board of Education, you have a state Supreme Court saying that schools should not be segregated. So in the end, the Hines and Weisingers didn't just make an impact locally, they also helped secure essential civil rights at the state level, and in many ways, nationally, in terms of ending segregation, which is important to recognize because it's the truth. And if more people knew about them, then I think that we're all the better for it. The Hines and Weisinger families, even years after the court case, continued to make an impact upon the state. For example, a Heinz daughter, Pearl, studied music. 
She later married newspaper publisher and mortuary owner Frederick M. Roberts of Los Angeles, who in 1918 became the first African-American elected to the California state legislature. One of Weisinger's grandsons served in World War II, and one of his granddaughters, Florence Weisinger Allen, became a renowned civil rights activist in San Francisco. And many of the Weisinger family continued farming in rural California. For four generations, they grew peaches and grapes in the black settlement of Fowler near Fresno. So as we can see, when we recognize the long history of African-American homesteaders in rural California and their many contributions to the state, we gain a fuller understanding of California history. Alvin Coffey's great-great-granddaughter, Michelle Thompson, frames these stakes this way. We didn't pop out of the cotton fields. We've worked. We've, you know, we've contributed. We've helped build America. And specifically as farmers and ranchers. When you talk about farmers, it's not all these white farmers with little white kids out in the cornfield. There are all colors, whether they're Hispanic, Black, Chinese, etc. They're all out there in that field raising families, you know, and they're all contributing to the economy. And all contributing to the story of California. So African-American rural residents like the Moore, Hines, and Weisinger families made lasting impacts on the state that helped make California what it is today. But it's important to remember that Black settlers didn't just cultivate change individually. Some made lasting impacts through collective actions, carving out settlements and communities across the state. Tune into our next episode called Independent Settlements, Building Black Communities in Rural California to learn how many Black settlers in rural California went about the work of building communities. Thanks for listening to the Calac Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgments. We Are Not Strangers Here is a collaboration between the California Historical Society, Susan Anderson and the California African American Museum, Exhibit Envoy and Amy Cohen, myself, Dr. Caroline Collins from UC San Diego, and the Calac Roots Project at the California Institute for Rural Studies. Our traveling exhibit banners were written by Susan Anderson, our project's primary history advisor. And this podcast was written and produced by me with production help from Lucas Brady Woods. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhum.org to learn more. And the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation.